Scripture this morning is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thanks, Johanna. Good morning. Uh, if you've heard of R.C. Sproul, he passed away a bit ago, and he wrote a commentary on the book of or the Gospel of John here. And he tells of having studied it uh, as an undergrad, translated it as a seminary student, and so worked all the way through it academically, carefully, prayerfully for seven years or so. And he said he didn't even begin to know John until he preached through it. I'm getting a sense of that personally just a few weeks in. And this passage is part of the reason for that. It helps us to see something truly profound about the nature of God, Son of God, the Christ, the light, and within all of that, our salvation. I tried hard this week, prayerfully hard, uh, intellectually hard, to communicate to you the glory that is in this. And I, I pray now that knowing I didn't quite get there, that the Spirit would be adequate, knowing the Spirit is adequate, to bridge the gap. But this this passage teaches us something truly profound, several things that are truly profound. You've heard this. I'm going to say it again. As long as we're in the introduction, you're going to hear this. God sent prophets for centuries before the Christ would come, promising and describing the Christ to prepare the people for the Christ. God even promised one final prophet, one final prophet before the Christ to add one last definitive piece of evidence for his coming so that everyone would know and no one would miss it and everyone could receive him as he deserved to be received. And that was the prophet John the Baptist. John was sent from God, we read here, to bear witness about the Christ who is the light of the world. From this we can't help but to think. you got to have this in mind to appreciate where we're going in this text. You have to have passages like Isaiah 48, 3-5 in mind, in which God said, The former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth. So God 
speaks things in advance. They go out from his mouth. He announces them. God says, and suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, that's you all, me, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead is brass. All right, welcome to Grace Church. I declared them to you. This is God saying, because that's you, because that's me, I declared these things to you from of old before they came to to pass. I announced them to you. God told his people what he would do well in advance so that they would not miss that or give credit to someone or something else when it did come to pass. But here's, here's the key of this passage. In spite of all of this, when the true light came to the world and revealed himself to everyone, the world did not recognize him. He stood there, I'm going to come back to this in the, in the heart of the sermon, but he stood there and the world did not recognize them. him. He stood in front of them, further confirming his nature and purpose, in addition to all the pro- prophecies and promises. In addition to all of that, he stood in front of them, confirming his nature and purpose through teaching and signs and wonders. But the world still did not know him. John, that is the gospel author, not the Baptist, tells us that this is because before we can see the light, we must be born, we'll learn later, again of God. So let's pray that God would help us to grow, to better understand, and appreciate his sovereign grace in giving us the right to become children of God. God, we, we love you because you loved us first. And part of that is revealing to us your nature, your holiness, your glory, your majesty, your perfection. And within those things, our own sin and unworthiness and rebellion and treason. That we deserve not to be in fellowship with you, but punishment. To love you is to know those things because... To be loved by you is for you to have revealed those things to us, not to crush us, but to lay us low that we might turn to you in faith and stop trusting in ourselves and our own ways and our own wisdom and stop seeking our pleasures in the things that you have been made rather than you, the one who offers yourself freely to all who will receive and believe as we'll see today. God, the great question before us is, how do we get from here to there? How do we get from people who stand before you and miss you to those who would receive and believe and trust and obey and count all, all things as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, the light of the world? How does that happen? Thank you for John's gospel, which answers that remarkably well, and for this introduction that introduces us to the answer. Please give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. Help us to see what's in this text. This is remarkable. This is profound. This is a gift to us, unlike, there are not many like this. Please don't let us miss it. For your glory and our good, and the good of the whole world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, the whole gospel exists, John tells us, primarily to convince us that Jesus 
was the Christ that God promised to send in order that we would believe in him, in order that through him we would have life in him. That's awesome. How exactly would he convince his readers of this? If that's his aim, if that's what John the Apostle's aim was in writing this gospel, how do you go about doing that? How do you help people see that and believe that and receive that and find life in that? Well, there's lots of ways, but we find one in particular in verses 6 through 8. In these, in these uh, few verses, he offers evidence. So if you want to prove that Jesus is the Christ, show me some evidence, and he does. As I mentioned last week, though, it's easy to make significant claims, but it can be at times much harder to back them up. Indeed, generally speaking, the more significant the claim, the more evidence that a reasonable person would need to receive it, believe it, accept it. So uh, how many of you think right now, if we were to go outside, you could run a mile in under 20 minutes. Just raise your hand. How many, under 20 minutes. How many think you could do a mile? So I believe you, right? I, I believe you. You don't need a lot of evidence. Uh, most of you are reasonably fit, and frankly, 20 minutes isn't all that fast. And so you could probably do it. I don't need much else other than you raising your hand. Uh, on the other hand, it'd be a little different if you were to say, I could run one right now outside on the trail in under six Minutes. That's a little harder, quite a bit harder. And it'd be another thing entirely if any of you claimed to be able to run it in under four minutes. Not many people in the history of the world have ever done that, and I happen to follow running closely enough that I probably would have heard of you if you had. And on top of that, many of you eat donuts with me on Fridays. (laughs) And so I'd need a little bit more to go on than you just raising your hand right now for me to believe you weren't pulling my leg, teasing me, or that you really believed it, but you're nuts. So here's, here's the question, though. That, that makes sense on, on a horizontal level. And in the way of the world, all that makes sense. But what do we make of claims that are so great that no evidence could be truly sufficient? There are certain claims that are so big that no amount of evidence is enough. How do you actually prove a claim, for instance, to speak on behalf of God? Indeed, a common theme throughout the Bible is God's people struggling to listen to and believe those God truly did send as his messengers. Some of that's understandable. After all, anyone can, and many did, falsely claim to speak for God. Cults and false religions all stem from some variety of this. There's always a need to consider this kind of claim extra carefully. But, but how do you know when it's true and when it isn't? How do you finally get over the edge? Well, it was such a common problem uh, that, that God gave his people a number of tests, pieces of evidence throughout the years. John himself spoke of this in his first letter. We're reading the, the gospel according to John, but John also wrote a, a few letters And in his very first letter, he commanded his readers, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. It is everyone who claims to speak on God's behalf. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John himself gives us a warning. Don't don't just believe anybody who claims to speak on God's behalf. Well, how do you do that? How do you test the spirit? How do you test the prophet, the one the one claiming. How, how do you verify such a claim? What 
evidence might they, or God, give us? Again, in love, God gave his people a number of ways to do that. For instance, probably the clearest is in Deuteronomy 18. He says this, But the prophet who presumes, this is God speaking, who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. That's a, that's a serious thing. It's a big deal. But how do you tell the difference? It tells us. And if you say in your heart, how may we know? That's, you should say this in your heart. How do we know? How, how may we know that the word, the word that the Lord has not spoken or has spoken? And he says this, verse 22, Deuteronomy 18, 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is, that, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Simple enough. If it doesn't come true, it's not from me because I'm the truth. Well, another occasional means that God gave to validate a claim to speak on his behalf was the ability to perform some kind of miraculous sign. He gave Moses a staff that would turn into a snake. Do you remember he gave Moses the ability to hold his hands up and as long as he did, the Israelite armies would defeat their enemies. He put them down. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Raise your I tried that in football games. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't just work. And so this is God doing something to show that Moses is speaking on his behalf. Do you remember he would slide his hand into his cloak, kids? Do you remember what would happen when he pulled it out? It'd be all white, wouldn't it? It looked like he had leprosy. Again, this was from God to prove that Moses was God's messenger. Similarly, do you remember Jesus said, your sins are forgiven and everybody goes crazy? How in the world could he do that? How could he speak that way? How could he say such a thing? Do you remember what he said? In order that you know, would know that the Son of Man has the authority from God to forgive sins, I tell you, be healed. And so it says he would perform miracles to show that his teaching was from God. This is gift from the Father to the Son to verify that he was the Son. The early church leaders were given the ability in the Spirit to perform great signs and wonders as well, to show that the Christ was risen and that they spoke on his behalf. God granted them the ability to heal. One of my favorites as a preacher is Acts 29, Paul's preaching, apparently really into it, and guy falls asleep, falls out the window, and dies. You know, we'd probably handle that one way today. He went out, raised him from the dead, kept preaching. That was from God to show that Paul was a messenger of God. Awesome. And, and maybe even more significantly than that is the apostles regularly would preach and everybody would say, wait, aren't these fishermen? Aren't these uneducated people? How do they speak with such power and authority? These are all means that God gave to his people to prove that they were speaking on his behalf. Well, we find another, another example or another piece of evidence, another way that God would validate the claims of one speaking on his behalf in our passage today. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, that through John the Baptist's testimony about the light, all would believe in the light. He was not the light but he came to bear witness about the light. In order to help prove the claim that Jesus was the Christ, so 
John the Apostle wrote the gospel. He's trying to show that Jesus is the Christ, that you would believe on him and have life. And in, 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 in a, as a means of that, he tells the story of John the Baptist, who was sent by God to proclaim the coming of the Christ. So John, John told his readers that a man sent from God to bear witness concerning Jesus had come. John the Baptist, that'll become even more clear as we work through the first chapter. But in simplest terms, this is remarkable. In simplest terms, you got to get this, Grace. It's gonna, I think it'll get increasingly clear, but get this. Remarkably, God sent a prophet, Isaiah 43, and an angel, Luke 1, 13 to 17, to prepare the world for the coming of John the Baptist, who would prepare the world for the coming of the Christ. How do you prove that Jesus is the Christ? Will you prophesy of someone who would come to prophesy that he had come? That's one way. Maybe not the way I would have thought of, but this is another way that God gives so that his people would not miss his son when he came into the world. John the Baptist's aim in preparing the way for Jesus was the same as the apostles' aim in writing the gospel, that all might believe in Jesus as the Christ. Again, that's the heart of verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Don't miss the simple fact that God gave significant evidence, sufficient evidence, in one sense, for the Christness of Jesus. And John, the apostle, is reporting that to us. He told his people in advance, like in Isaiah 48, what to expect so that they would not miss Jesus when he came. In the end, John, the gospel writer, made sure it was crystal clear that as remarkable as John the Baptist was, he was simply another messenger pointing to one greater than himself. He, John the Baptist, was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Let me give you a few key takeaways before we get to the heart of the passage. Be on guard against believing false claims about God. That can come in all kinds of forms, from cult religions, which maybe are a little easier to see. But one of the most common things that I see today is people saying things that sound like they might be something God would say about himself, or might be true about God, but they just made it up. It's just a mixture of a bunch of like stuff. Probably some Sunday school stuff that they remember, some, something they got from Oprah, and something you got from whatever's on TV, and you kind of mix it up together, and it sounds close enough that you, yeah, that's... That's plausible, but be on guard against believing false claims about God. Doing so today means testing every claim about God against the Word of God. By God's grace, as participants in the new covenant, we have the most straightforward test of all. That's that's the Bible. We can know if someone speaks for God by comparing what they say to what God has revealed to us in the Bible, for it is sufficient. In, in the Bible, God gives us all that we need to know to live in a manner pleasing to him. Second, be the most faithful witness you can be concerning Jesus, that all might believe through you. In in John the Baptist, we have an example of this. If you have seen the light, Grace Church, that is, if you're a Christian, if your hope is in Jesus, it is your privilege and responsibility to bear witness to the light. Would you write that down? That's, That's important. As, like John, our witness ought to be to everyone, indiscriminately. If you've seen the light, you share the light, you reflect the light, you talk about the light, you invite people to the light, everyone, always. It is not up to you. This is a good one to write down too. 
It is not up to you to decide who gets to hear it or who should hear it or how they might respond when you share it with them. How many times have you paused in sharing the gospel with someone because you have, there's no way they'll, they'll receive it? Maybe because they haven't for the 10 times before that you already shared it with them. And you decide yourself who's going to receive the light and when. Don't do that. It is not up to us to decide who should hear or who might receive the light. Our joyful, privileged charge, like John the Baptist, is to simply call on everyone to believe through our message. And also under this banner, as witnesses of the light, the manner in which we proclaim or bear witness to the light matters too. To be a credible witness. We don't want to be just just a witness. We want to be a credible witness. And to do that is to love and walk in the light ourselves. Thirdly, lastly, we must remember that we're not the light. You're not the point. You're, You're not the thing that gives light to the world. God may do that through you, but you're not the point of our light ministry. It's not about you. It's not about me. We delight ourselves in leading others to Jesus for his glory, not ours. He must become, I must become lesser. He must become greater. All of this will become even more clear as we get to the second half of chapter 1, the beginning of the book of signs. There will be introduced to the person of John the Baptist, hear of his illuminating ministry, and see its result. All of history has been building to this. And now finally, the final prophet would come and announce that the Christ is here, the true light of the world John was not the light, but his presence and ministry indicated that the true light had come. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives life to everyone, was coming into the world. The time grace had finally come. After centuries of waiting and longing and hoping and, and struggling, it was time. God loved the world, as we'll see in chapter 3, in such a way that he waited until just the right time, not a moment too soon. and Not a moment too late to send the light of the world into the world. This was the time. Praise God for this grace. We get to see this in this gospel. What a gift of grace. What's more, it says that true light, which gives light, we see that the true light must shine. I love that. It's just so simple and subtle and embedded in this. The true light must shine, Grace. It can't not. Jesus can't turn off the light or fail to give it any more than he can turn off goodness or truth or love. He can't not give those things because he is those things. Where Jesus is, there is light. He gives light. As we saw last week then, this verse does not say that Jesus came to give light and in the sense we might originally think or initially think, it says he did not come to give light nearly as much as it says that he came and with them and his light with him. That's amazing. That is awesome. But even more central, even more central to this simple verse is the fact that Jesus gives light to everyone. We're going to unpack this week after week after week as we walk with, as John helps us walk with Jesus through his life on earth. But let me just name three things right now that that it's for everyone. Jesus gives light to everyone in a few ways. It is for all and that it is what all need. 
He gives light in the sense that he gives to all what everyone needs. It is for all that it is that that it both is and illuminates the way to fullness of life. So whether we know it or not, see it or not, like it or not, I'll come back to that in a second. It is what everyone needs. It is and does shine the way to fullness of life. And it is for all in that it is available to all who encounter it to either accept or reject. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. We're going to see this in the gospel in the life of Christ over and over. The manner in which those who encounter the light, the, the manner in which they respond to it. So as we proclaim the gospel to the world, as we shine the light of Christ through us, or as Christ shines his light through us, the manner in which people respond to it does not alter one bit the lightness of the light. Okay, what do I mean by that? Whether we miss it entirely, whether we see it and hate it, are angered by it, reject it, deny it, or embrace it in faith, the light is still the light for all. And third, in these key ways, get this. I'll I'll tell you more later what I mean by this. But we cannot impose the true light on anyone. That's language we hear all over the place today. But insofar as everything that John has said to this point is true, you cannot impose the true light on anyone. Again, it's very different from what the world talks about in terms of the light of Jesus. But the way God talks about the light of Jesus is more important than the way his creatures do. So this, of course, leaves us with the million-dollar question that I hope you're already asking. How would the world respond? Okay, all this waiting, all this longing, all this excitement, all this hope, all this discouragement... And now the time had come, how would the world respond? There's going to be, it's going to be awesome, right? It's going to be, un, the, the thing that the world was made for is coming into the world. It's going to be unbelievable, right? You didn't read, you didn't read ahead. You, it's just going to, it's going to be, can you imagine the party? Well, look at verses 9 through 11. The true light which gives life to everyone was coming into the world. It's awesome. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Here we go. Party's about to party's about to start. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. What? That, that's not where I thought this was going to go. Before getting to the specifics of these few verses, I need you to imagine something. Really, really imagine this. Kids, you can do this. I need you to imagine how silly of a scene it would be. Here's a scene. Picture it in your head. Kids, you're better at this than a lot of the adults, so help us with this. Here's the scene. Somehow, I don't know how this works exactly, but you're standing up in the sky uh, right up by the sun. There's nothing in between you, like the burning ball of fire, you know what I mean? Uh, not S-O-N, S-U-N, giant ball of fire in the sky. You're, you're standing in front of it. Picture the scene. You're, you're with somebody. You bring somebody up there with you. You're standing in front of the sun, giant ball of fire in the sky, and your your job is to convince them. It's right there. It's right It's right in front of them. They don't even have any eyebrows anymore. You're, you're right there. And it's your job to convince them. It's shining, all its fury, blazing heat, blinding light. Your job, charged with the task of convincing them right in that moment 
But it is there. It's real. It's bright. It's hot. You're with them. You're standing there. You're melting. But they don't see it. They don't get it. They don't understand. Well, what do you say? What do you add to the sun melting you? What, do you, what, what evidence do you offer? What, what could you say? What would you present that standing in front of the sun right now? What could you say that the sun itself couldn't do in that moment? You with me? Do you see how silly that is? How do you prove to somebody the sun's real? It's bright. It's hot while standing in front of it, and they don't get it. As I mentioned earlier, and I'll mention again at the end, this is such a key to understanding John's gospel. It's so key to understanding what he means to receive him, which you'll say in a, in a minute, or we'll see in a minute, and to know him. It's so key that it's hard to overstate. Jesus, the Christ Grace Church, the very Son of God, the true light of the world was in the world. He walked among men and women, the men and women he had made and created and was speaking into existence in whom we live and move and have our being. Men and women who are standing on the earth that he made, in the bodies that he made, with the minds and the eyes that he made. He is the one to whom all things belong. He is perfect in holiness. He is the exact representation of the invisible God. And he stood there shining for all to see. And yet they didn't even recognize him. He wasn't even seen, let alone seen as light. How does that work, Grace? You have to ask yourself that question. How can the Son of God stand in front of you and you miss it? What is, what is going on? Again, I'm going to come back to this, but how can you believe and receive that Jesus is the Christ when he's standing in front of you and you don't have eyes to see? And it's just, he came first to the children of Abraham, the children of the promise. John wrote to those who had the covenants and the promises and the feasts and the laws and had experienced the exodus and the giving of the promised land and victory over enemies and the pinnacle of The rule under David, he came to his own, verse 11 says, and his own people did not receive him. But as we saw, he did not shine only on his own. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This is like the most dramatic version of Undercover Boss ever. I mean, I just all week I'm picturing Elon Musk, maybe one of the most recognizable faces with just this dumb little fake mustache, thinking he's going to trick somebody. It's like the most dramatic version of undercover boss ever. Ever the the one who made the world didn't just wasn't in charge of a plant or a, a building. He made the world and was actively holding the world together, and the world had no idea. Again, what do you say to someone staring at the face of God who cannot recognize they're looking at God? What do you say? What helpful evidence can you give that God is real and present and good and glorious beyond measure and offers himself to someone if God is standing in front of them offering all of those things to them and they and that can't convince them? What do we do? You feeling this? I'm saying the same thing a bunch to help you feel this. This is the heart of what John was trying to communicate in these few verses and in his gospel. You, you got to get this. Jesus is here and the world does not receive them. What's going on? This is the case, Grace, for all of us. 
all the time. We have the word, we have creation, we have the heavens, we have the testimonies of the saints, we have the image of God woven into us, we have the gospel, and so do our friends and neighbors and family members. And yet so often we cannot see the true light that has come into the world. So do you say, try harder? Just just look harder. Just believe, just work at it, just, just pull on something. Is that what we do? No, John, John helps us to see the beginning here, and the rest of the gospel unpacks this. No, we cry out to God and urge everyone else to do so as well. God, open my eyes to behold your glory. It's there. It's there to be seen. The heavens declare it. When we don't, rocks cry out. Open my eyes to behold your glory. If you don't, I'll never see. The big idea that this passage introduces is the reality that John's aim is to help people believe that Jesus is the Christ in light of the fact that his presence alone should be more than enough, but something else is in the way here. And that leads us straight to the final point, the last two verses. In spite of all of that, in spite of all that God had offered and promised, in spite of the announcing ministry of John the Baptist falling mainly on deaf ears, The world rejected the true light. So where does that leave us? That's what 12 and 13 are about. First, John wrote, the offer still stands. (laughs) He came in, he missed it, the offer still stands. And until Jesus returns grace for you, your kids, your neighbors, your family members, it will always stand. But to all who did receive him, or who would receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To receive him in the sense is to acknowledge the authority, the life-giving, illuminating authority of Jesus. And to believe in his name is to accept all that Jesus claimed about himself as true. Combined, they signify a change from trusting in ourselves and treasuring things God made to trusting in Jesus and treasuring him above all. That's what he's saying. To, To believe and receive. Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from treasuring the things that have been made and trust in Jesus and treasure him above all. To all who would do that, who would receive Jesus and believe in his name, God will make you his sons and daughters. He will give you the right to become children of God. No matter what you've done, Grace, this is the gospel message, no matter what you've done in the past or no matter when you come to this point in this life, If you will receive and believe in Jesus, God will give you the right to become his children. Proclaim that good news. Share that light with the whole world. No amount of our rejection or our heartedness will keep keep us from God's love if we will receive and believe in Jesus. But that just brings us back to the question, doesn't it? That still leaves us with the crucial question of how does that happen? Okay, well, there it is. I mean, you can tell that to anyone you want, but how does that happen? How does somebody do that when the light can be standing in front of you and you don't see it? How do we, how do, we do so? Well, it's possible to stand in front of the one who made the world, the source of all light, the true light, brighter than a billion suns, and not even see a, a flicker of light. Well, that's the last verse and the rest of the gospel. You have to be born. <laughs> That's the answer. You have to be born, okay? There you go. To believe and receive, you must see the true light, but to see the true light, you need to first be born. All right, well, we got that covered. <laughs> I think if you can hear me right now and understand my words, I, I imagine you've met that qualification. If you're in this room, you've probably been born. 
I think. So you must be able to see the true light of God and receive and believe, right? Well, not quite, as you know. For to see, receive, and believe, John wrote, not just any birth will do. He names three kinds that won't do, or at least three ways of being born that won't do, and one kind that will. What kind of births won't do? <laughs> Got to be born. If you're going to receive Jesus as light, you have to believe believe on him and see him. To do that, you have to be born. Well, there's three kinds that won't. First, it is not birth from blood. God did not give the right to become his children. You don't get eyes to see if you're simply or merely born of blood. It says again, this is verse 13, he did not give the right to become children to those who were born of blood. In simplest terms, it was an expression that meant to be born by natural means. Something more than being born as all babies are born is necessary. Second, it is not birth of the will of the flesh. God did not give the right to become children, his children, to those who were born of the will of the flesh. Again, it's another expression that simply meant being born as the result of natural physical desires between men and women. That's insufficient as well. Third, it is not a birth that is the result of the will of men. God did not give the right to become his children to those who were born of the will of men. He says, that is, being born according to our parents' plans is not the kind of birth that allows us to see, receive, and believe in Jesus. Those are kind of the births we know about. (laughs) Those are three key components to the kind of birth that we think of generally, to any normal birth. But if none of those are sufficient, or if none of that is sufficient, what's left? What What other kind of birth is there? What kind of birth will do if if we need to be born in a certain way to see and to see, believe and receive and through that to become children of God and have life, what kind of birth do we need? It is a new kind of birth. It is a new birth of God. He gave the right to become children of God to those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, the rest of John's gospel helps to see what exactly this means and how exactly this happens. But for now, please understand the simple but entirely profound teaching of of John. A kind of new birth is necessary to see, receive, believe, and become children of God, children of light, children of life. The question then that John raises and answers over and over in the gospel is whether we believe in order to be born or if we need to be born in order to believe. Do we trust in Jesus so that new birth would follow? Or do we receive the new birth so that trust can follow? Plainly, simply, directly, John's gospel is emphatic about the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that life is only in him, that life comes from believing in Jesus. And so we call all to believe, receive, Believe in Jesus. Receive Jesus. And so we call all people to do that, but belief in receiving Jesus comes from being born of God. So why do we stand before Jesus unaware and unmoved? Why do your neighbors hear the gospel and it looks like you're speaking to cardboard? Why do we share the gospel with the world and have them reject it, sometimes in anger, sometimes in indifference? Why are teenagers bored by God and walk away from the church? 
Or on the other end of the spectrum, why do you believe in Jesus when so many don't? The answer is because seeing, believing, and receiving come from being born of God. What does this mean? How does this work? Why would this be good news? How is this glorious? It will become clearer and clearer and clearer as we walk through John's gospel. Grace, God promises that, promised that the Christ would come, and he has. He is the light of the world. He is shining now for all to see and receive and believe and faith. And the call on your life and mine is to do that today. See, believe, and receive him now. If you do, you will have life, and you will be given the right to become children of God. This is an awesome gift. It's an undeserved gift. It is the essence of the grace that God offers in Christ. Would you receive that today? Would you call out to God and ask him for the life that only he can give, that you would believe in his name and be given the right to become his children?